The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, all right, and welcome to the show. We are set to go. We hope you are as well. John Schools here hosting. As always, we got the uh, the brains on the other side from Sanfiru to Mark and LLP. This week, we're talking to Chris Justice, and you can always reach out to Chris afterwards, uh, by the way, to discuss your own personal matter of the employment nature. How do you do it? one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. That email address, if we have time over the course of this hour, try to get to some of your emails. If not, we got a few topics to get through. Uh, Severance Package 101. If we got time reprisals at work, we are ready to go. But uh, oh, you got a good one to start the show with today, Chrissy. What's uh, what's going on with the uh, the case of the day or the week that was in this case? What do you got, Bell? Yeah, no, I wanted to bring up today a topic or, or something mm-hmm. that happened in the news not too long ago, actually south of the border down in the U.S. and Georgia with respect to Lululemon. Not sure how many people are aware of this, but recently there was a robbery that occurred in yes. that particular store. Uh, there were a few individuals who had come in, stolen a bunch of items, and there were two, I think, staff members at that Lululemon store who had sort of intervened or had at least uh, told the, the robbers to get out and had, I think followed them to some extent out of the store. And as a result of all of that, they uh, these employees, that is, ended up losing their job. Lululemon had terminated their employment for cause and had cited that there was a breach of their zero-tolerance policy uh, when it came to sort of reducing the risk of potential threats or actual threats. So, you know, there was a lot of uproar about this. Um, actually, I think even the stock price at Lululemon may have fallen as a result shortly <laughs> afterwards, and some people were calling for these people to get, you know, reinstated. Uh, I think the employees themselves were saying something along the lines of, you know, trying to act in the interests of, you know, the store as well uh, to, to get this, this stuff back. But, you know, as it so happened, they were let go. And so I thought it would be a good thing to bring up in the context of employee misconduct or alleged misconduct and sure. whether that actually results in uh, just cause or if, for example, uh, had this occurred in Ontario, you know, would Lululemon have been required to pay these individuals severance on their way out at the very least? Um, I, I do think there are a number of factors to consider. Obviously, the policy itself um, that Lululemon was speaking about had to do with health and safety, again, had to do with the protection of staff uh, customers. And I think that, you know, when it comes to these sorts of policies, there is uh, more strictness applied to them. Um, you know, again, it doesn't have to be that actual bodily harm happens, but even the threat or risk of bodily harm uh, could be very severe. And so, as I say, these cases are treated a bit differently than, let's say, if it was just a, a policy breach of a more innocuous sort of manner. Um, but yeah, the question I think also comes back to, if there is misconduct, if this is what happened, does that mean, uh, say, a company on Ontario would have the right to let people go and pay them no severance on their way out? And putting aside the fact that it's a it's a health and safety related policy, there are other things we have to look at, such as, you know, were these employees made aware of the policy? Um, where is this policy? You know, is it a physical mm-hmm. booklet that's just sort of stored in the back room collecting dust and no one's ever really brought it up? Or is it something where, let's say, Lululemon or any company, for that matter, provides ongoing training for? Uh, maybe you're asked to sign a health and safety-related manual each year. 
Um, so I think to some extent there's of course going to be an obligation on the employer to ensure that their employees are well aware of this policy, that they know that you know if they breach a policy, certain consequences could happen. Um, and then you also got to look at the general context in terms of how long have these people been there? Has there been any history of this happening before? Have they breached a similar policy in the past? Um, do they have otherwise a relatively unblemished record? Um, so, so it does raise a lot of interesting questions in terms of whether someone can be let go in an instance like this without um, any severance. Um, but yeah, these, these are all factors that will go into it. Another factor would be which staff member is breaching the policy? Is it someone who's in a more managerial position? Maybe there's a higher expectation that they should know XYZ, or is it somebody who's maybe a bit lower um, in the rankings when the company's concerned uh, in terms of their position? So. I thought it's good to talk about, as I say, I know a lot of people may think, oh, I'm dead to rights, I don't have any like to stand on, I've committed some act of misconduct, so they're within their rights to let me go, but as a lot of listeners on the show know, it is still relatively hard for employers to establish cause, um, even in some extreme examples where there could be threats or, or actual um, damage or harm done. But uh, yeah, definitely an interesting case for sure. Yeah, I, w- I, would, I would find it that company at least on canadian soil to as you know we've said in the show many times just to jump right to the you know the yeah capital punishment of the of the workplace uh, relationship and fire these people not to mention i mean i saw this story on cnn and just you know a sidebar i saw that i don't know if it's the ceo or the founder just a total jack wagon this guy he, he, he's <laughs> up there defending him like you have just hung a sign above every one of your stores telling people to come in steal our you know what grab it and run i mean yeah just moronic management policy, as far as I'm concerned. So up here, just a just a just a clown, that guy. You know, my daughter yeah. buys, or no, sorry, my daughter doesn't buy that stuff. I buy that <laughs> stuff for my daughter, so I see why people rip it off because it's 140 bucks for a pair of tights. So they got to get a better policy. But I don't think up here that would uh, that would hold water. If the Chris Justice got after these guys for getting fired for one offense, no, don't think it would yeah. happen. Yeah, I do think you know that's another you know what point. I mean? That's, Good that's point. what I think anyway. That's another good point you raise in terms of um, progressive discipline, you know, like another factor that would be included would be, you know, did the company jump the gun, even though it may be a serious incident, um, did the company perhaps, you know, not Mm -hmm. jump right to a cause termination, but maybe they offer training, maybe they suspend somebody's employment, you know, tell them that if this happens again, you know, we will have to take further action, which may result in the termination of your employment. Yeah. As I say, provide ongoing training, and then as the employer, you've just firm, more firmly established that you've done pretty much everything you can before escalating to, as you mentioned, the capital punishment of the employment law world. But you know, it's still uh, it's still a bit of a tricky thing. You know, the law is never black and white. And again, when it comes to these kinds of concerns, I can understand to some degree, but I do still think, uh, of course, there's obligations on the employer's end. And uh, as I say, jumping to the gun in you know a lot of cases just doesn't end up working out for them. Um, as we sort of discussed on previous shows and episodes. Okay, topic number one, severance package 101. Love this topic. But a lot of people through the course of their work life are going to be faced with this uh, coming across the desk at them on their final day. Uh, number one, you, don't not, you do not have to sign or accept a severance package on the spot or by an employer's deadline. Break that down for us, pal. Yeah, so these are obviously very important things regarding severance. A lot of people may think that stuff like this is very basic, but it's so important and, and still not enough. Not, not enough people know about what they should be doing in certain cases. I get calls all the time from people telling me, Chris, I'm panicked. 
I've got this severance letter. I've been let go. They've given me till say Friday at 5 p.m. to accept the package. And if I don't accept the package, they're telling me they're just going to take away the extra three, four, five months they're giving me, and they're just going to provide me with my bare minimum rights. And you know, time and time again, I tell people, you know, don't worry about this deadline. This is there to put pressure on you to, you know, hopefully, I guess, make you accept the package because the fact of the matter is vast majority of packages that are offered to people from the jump are not going to be reasonable. So you're in most cases going to want to negotiate that package. You're going to want to say no to whatever's been offered you in the first instance and, and come back in with, with a better offer, have a lawyer get involved to negotiate a better package. So it's not a deadline you have to follow. Technically, when you're let go, you've got upwards of two years to take action against that company if you want. And by no means am I mentioning or, or suggesting people wait that long. You should take action relatively quick and get some legal advice, but just know that mm -hmm. this deadline that's been put in these letters um, is not something you need to follow. It doesn't determine what your rights are. It doesn't affect you know how much you're going to get if you pass the deadline without responding. Um, but as I say, in general, when you're in a situation like this, call up a lawyer, get some legal advice, and, and let them kind of help you take it through the process. And with that, we'll take a short break. Get back to it again. Your phone calls, 416-870-6400. We continue with more of the Employment Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You bet. Welcome back to it. It is the Employment Law Show. Chris Justice is your employer on the show today, or at least your lawyer on the show today. You want to reach out to Chris after the show to discuss your matter. Always encouraged to do so on your own time. Uh, maybe uh, send that along to a friend, family member, colleague, a workplace uh, colleague, too. Maybe having some issues, you can reach Chris uh, outside the hour of the show, one 855 help at employmentlawyer.ca. And the website you want to go to anytime as well, it was built just for to make you that much smarter, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Wrapped up in that sucker is the severance calculator, which dutifully does what it's told to do. That is calculate your severance in about 30 seconds. Just uh, type in a couple bits of key information. You'll get a number at the bottom, and there's contact after that if you want to reach out further and discuss your matter. Again, that website, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, been used by millions across this uh, country for sure. We'll continue with our severance package 101 discussion, Chris. Point number two, severance package is calculated using a number of factors. It's not just the old one or two weeks pay per year, which, you know, your neighbor or your buddy who knows everything about employment law but is not a lawyer has told you, right? Break that down for me. Yeah, and again, something I encounter a lot. People come to me assuming, mm -hmm. you know, one or two weeks per year. They tell me, oh, Chris... You know, my employer has said as much, and so I assume that's right. Or maybe they've done a little bit of their own research and looked up on Google and saw some legislation that said you get a week or two per year, but that's just not the case. You know, when it comes to the factors that are considered, um, the first one, I'll just break it down, has to do with age. So typically, the older somebody is, Generally speaking, the more more severance they're going to receive. I myself tend to find that this occurs when somebody starts to get into their 50s and beyond. You'll see a little bit of a bump up when it comes to severance as far as the law is concerned. Um, that's one factor. The second factor is position. So the position that you actually held at the time you were let go um, is going to matter because if you're, say, earning minimum wage at McDonald's and you've lost your job, 
the the theory is that it's not going to take you as long to find something of a comparable nature, which is typically what you're obligated to seek out once you lose your job versus, let's say, your CEO, a manager, a director, VP, what have you, typically going to take longer. Maybe there's a longer interview process. The time that it actually takes from applying for the job to landing the job mm. could on its own be several months long. So uh, position at the time let go, that's another factor. And then your length of service, how long you've been there is going to be another factor. And on this point, um, and I've mentioned this in previous shows, a lot of people assume that if they've only been at a company for a year to maybe three, that they're not really looking at a ton of money. And that's just not necessarily the case. These people who have, I guess, what's called shorter term service with a company actually tend to get disproportionately larger packages. They can get packages that will oftentimes reflect a month or two for every year they've worked uh, let alone a week or two. Um, so length of service is another important one. Otherwise, generally, the longer your service, you'll, you'll, you'll typically see more severance being offered your way. Um, and, and this is all based on generally how long it should take someone in your position to find another job. That's the purpose behind severance. That's the whole point of it. Um, but those are the main factors, age, position, length of service. There are other factors that may not apply in every instance, but actually may be more specific to a case um, that could also have a big factor or a big bearing on someone's severance entitlements. And, and just a few examples of that. Number one, we've got the COVID pandemic. Um, so if you, let's say, were let right. go in 2020, right. 2021, maybe there's going to be a lot less available jobs in your industry, um, specifically due to the pandemic, and that can result in a bit of a bump. And actually, there have been judges that have referred to it as the COVID bump uh, to somebody's severance entitlements. Or perhaps you have a medical condition. Maybe you've been let go and you're suffering from something that effectively prevents you from getting another job or something comparable to what you had. That could be a more specific um, sort of factor that gets included. Or it just might be the position you have being very, very niche um, or your skill set being very, very specific. So there are general factors, those top three that I mentioned, but then there's also other factors that may relate specifically to a case or, or here or there. Um, but yeah, certainly not a week or two per year. And as many people know by now, you can get upwards of two years of severance depending on your situation and, and what factors are at play. It's interesting, though. I mean, the, the, the one point you made there was, you know, short service employees get disproportionately larger amounts of severance. And, and yeah. people always wonder, why is that? I've only worked there for a few months and I might get a few months pay. And yeah. you mentioned it, it's the difficulty in finding follow up employment. I mean, especially if you're, you know, you're, you're soon to be employers like, OK, I noticed you were here for four months, only yeah. four months. What happened? You know what I mean? Yeah. So you've got to explain that. So that's going to take some time through maybe several interviews, maybe longer than even the severance would last. Hence the reason, I guess, why you get more if you've only been a short service employee, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I always say that it doesn't matter if you're working at a company for a few weeks, a few years, a few decades. If you lose your job, it's still going to generally take a certain bare minimum amount of time to replace that job. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, there have been cases where somebody's worked for 112 days and the employer's thinking this is crazy that this person should get severance, but then that person ends up getting awarded four to six months by a judge. Um, so, so yeah, like I say, a lot goes into it, but it's still going to take somebody a certain amount of time, especially if they have a more senior role that, as I said before, has sort of those interview stages or, or, or whatnot. 
Has this two-year or this two-week-per-year thing, is that kind of a spillover from what people would get from the Ministry of Labor going down that route? Which, you know, most people, it's the Ministry of Labor. If they've never heard this show over the last 10 years, they might automatically go down that road, right? Yeah, yeah. And there is reference in the legislation in Ontario, for instance, where it will speak to somebody who gets a week or two for every completed year of service they have. Um, so mm. whether it's maybe somebody looking at that and thinking that's all I get and not maybe realizing that's the, the bare minimum that they get, or maybe they have contacted the Ministry of Labor and the ministry has told them what their supposed rights are. But um, and, and this is something I bring up a lot as well. When it comes to the Ministry of Labor, a lot of people will assume mistakenly that they can get everything an employment lawyer can get when the Ministry of Labor, when it comes to severance, can only get those bare minimum amounts. So you could be in a situation thinking that the Ministry of Labor will get you the severance you're owed, you go to them, they end up getting you what they tell you your rights are under the legislation, which may be eight weeks, and then you find out that, you know, had you not gone through the Ministry of Labor and received your full common law severance rights, you could be getting, you know, a year, a year and a half, maybe two years, um, which can often sort of highlight the difference between what on one hand is your bare minimum rights, you know, maybe a few weeks for every year or, or thereabouts, and then what's actually your, your maximum. And by going down this Ministry of Labor route, once you go down that far enough, you can't turn back. You can't sort of say, okay, now I want to get the rest of it. You're sort of locked into that process. So I'm always telling people to be very, very mindful when it comes to thinking about going to the ministry in terms of severance. I think other things, if you're looking for things like overtime, vacation, statutory holidays being paid out, minimum wage being insured, those are definitely things I think the Ministry of Labor can help out with, and it might actually be a more cost-effective way uh, to go about doing that. Yeah. But when it comes to the severance, that's that's a bad idea. You need to get an employment lawyer involved. Which is why we have Chris on the show uh, today. Again, reaching out beyond the show, one 821 5900 This is key information, man, for everybody at one time. You're going to want to know these uh, these talking points. Number three, severance may be influenced by your employment contract or not. What do you mean by that, Chris? Yeah, so I mentioned uh, just a second ago those main factors like age, position, length of service. Another factor that often comes into the equation is whether you've signed anything that could potentially limit your rights. So you do have your bare minimum rights that are, are going to be given to you regardless, and, and you do have your potential maximum full common law severance rights. But those full common law severance rights can potentially be limited or curtailed in some way um, based on a contract. Now, the good news for employees is that, relatively speaking, I find it's very rare, at least in my experience, to find a contract, look at the contract, and tell somebody it actually does limit their rights in a significant way. And I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty on that, but essentially employers have to ensure that they craft and draft their contracts in a very particular way. Language is very important in contracts when it comes to, well, just in general, but certainly when it comes to termination clauses. And historically, employers have drafted or have had contracts drafted and the termination clauses just really aren't up to snuff. But a lot of them are realizing, employers that is, that they may have to pay upwards of two years of severance for letting people go. And I think they're becoming more and more wise to the idea that these contracts need to be drafted very specifically in order to be ironclad. Um, so it could potentially have a huge effect on someone's rights. 
but that's also why it's very important that if you are given a contract, whether going into a job or at some time during your job, you, you absolutely want to get legal advice before signing it because you could be throwing away tens of thousands, if not more, uh, on your way out, which you know the last thing people usually think about when they're signing contracts is, is how much they're going to get in a termination scenario. Yeah, it's interesting too, man. By the the flip side of that is that uh, you know maybe if it's a small company, maybe they Googled some sort of oh, let's see, uh, employment contract. Oh, that one looks pretty. We'll use right. that one, or maybe not even so. I've I've gone through this working for a very large company in the past mm-hmm. that their employment contract uh, was outdated and didn't hold water. So they for an employer, they've got to be careful how they get that that uh, employment contract from the outset. Correct. Yeah, on the employer side, yeah, you don't want to be just looking up on Google templates for employment contracts, cutting and pasting it, and then just having your employees sign off on it because, you know, high, high odds are that that is not going to be enforceable when it comes to the termination section. But as you say, even when you get a lawyer involved and get a lawyer to properly draft a contract for you as the company uh, and present that to employees, it may be enforceable in 2021 but not hold any water in 2023. You know, the law is, you know, always evolving, changing, and and every little decision that comes down from the courts can have a a bearing on these contracts. Um, You know, there was a pretty important case that came out not too long ago that sort of changed the landscape a little bit when it came to contracts. And so a lot of times I'll see contracts that predate that case that are just now simply no good. They're just not good. They may have been good in 2015, but yeah, now in 2023, uh, the, the law has evolved a bit. And yeah, employers definitely need to be live to this and not only make yeah. sure that they have a lawyer look at contracts and draft proper contracts, but make sure that they're always keeping tabs on the law, getting legal advice to the extent that they need to update these contracts. Let's get to one more before we break. A couple more total, though. Severance Package 101. You are likely owed severance a package, even if you were let go for cause or even a contractor. We get that phone call all the time, too. Yeah, so uh, as I say off the top of the show, we were talking about the Lululemon story and, yep. and people being um, found to have engaged in misconduct. If if they're not found to have engaged in misconduct and it's just a mere allegation, then you know the company's not going to have any chance of establishing cause um, you know, for any alleged misconduct. But even when misconduct is found to be the case, as I mentioned, um, it's still relatively rare that that will automatically mean the company can just jump right to a for-cause termination without going through some of those progressive disciplinary steps beforehand. So um, a lot of people incorrectly assume that they've been let go for cause. Maybe they have engaged in some misconduct that they're willing to admit to or acknowledge. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're you're not without your rights. It doesn't mean that you're not still potentially owed upwards of two years of severance. And the same thing uh, with respect to uh, contractors. So a lot of people will come to me and tell me, Chris, my employer's telling me I'm a contractor. They've let mm-hmm. me go and they're saying for that reason, I'm not owed anything. Or Chris, I actually agree with them. I think I'm a contractor and I don't have any rights, do I? But it's not you. It's not your employer that decides who you're, who's a contractor or not. It's, it's ultimately going to be the law. And again, fortunately for employees or, or I guess workers in this situation, um, oftentimes, more often than not, they're going to be classified as an employee versus an independent contractor, which um, someone would not typically get severance. Um, but it does come down to a lot of factors. It's not about just a label that's being given to you. And so it's another, I think, assumption that people have that they may be dead to rights on when in fact it's not. So if you've been let go for alleged cause, 
if you've been told you're not owed severance because maybe you're a contractor or sometimes you know I hear you know you're a construction worker so you're not owed it for that reason don't assume that that's the case even if there is some reference to that somewhere in the legislation give us a call and and we can definitely kind of guide you through the steps and as I say you may not realize you're throwing away tens of thousands if not more in in severance owed we continue more the employment law show is on the way stick with us you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment back at it Dan. good to have you with us john schools here chris justice from san firu to mark llp you want to reach out you can do so anytime one 821 5,900 is the way you get a hold of uh, Chris. Email help at employmentlawyer.ca. But here and now, I want to get to uh, to Chris. Thank you so much for calling in, Chris. There we go. Hey, how are you? Hi. Hi, Chris. Hi. Good. What's on your mind? I have a question. So I worked for a major, one of the biggest companies in Canada. And during COVID, they were hiring a lot of people. Um, and the job postings had a statement on them that said this is a permanently work from home. Um, position and now that things have changed they are asking people to come back to the office so many days a month um, and they are trying to enforce that even on the people that had that in their posting can they do that yeah it's a good question so um, I think that if you are somebody who enters an employment relationship and let's say the contract you sign specifically says this is a work from home position um, then you're going to be uh, very likely able to insist that it be a work-from-home position. That's what you signed up for. That's what you agreed to. And for the employer to then later on say, actually, we want you to come into the office XYZ days during the week, that could definitely represent a big change to the terms of your agreement. And you as an employee would have an opportunity to potentially take a stand and either say yes, maybe negotiate, or say no and insist on either working from home, or you may be in a situation where you're owed severance. Um, so and then I just want to... Go ahead. The is that the posting, the job posting, said permanently work from home. The contract says currently work from home. Okay. Well, I think it may come down to the specific wording of the contract. Uh, I would say that in general, the contract is going to be what matters more. Um, that's going to set out the terms of your, your agreement. You're going to sign off on that, whereas the posting is not along those lines. But based on what you're saying, Chris, it does seem like there could still be a leg to stand on when it comes to these employees because for a contract to say you are currently working from home, what exactly does that mean? Does that suggest that there will be a change in the future? If so, when? You know, If so, to what degree? And so another thing when it comes to contracts is that if you look at a contract or an employee looks at a contract and there's a variety of different interpretations maybe that can be given to the wording of that contract, that's going right. to often benefit the employee because they're not the ones who drafted the contract. The, the employer or their lawyers were. So again, employers have to be very clear and, and um, I guess uh, do their due diligence when it comes to the wording of these contracts. And, yeah. and I'll just kind of... Com- contrast that to a situation where maybe you have a contract that says you're to work in the office Monday to Friday 
And as a matter of fact, over the last two, three years, you've been working from home. A lot of people may think that therefore they have the right to just continue working from home, even though the contract they signed way back when didn't mention anything about that. That's going to be a different situation. You know, you're not going to generally have as much of a leg to stand on, even if you can do your job entirely from home and it may not make sense to have you come back in. Those employees, as I say, are, are at a little bit more risk. Um, but you know, it would take having to, I guess, flesh out things a little bit further to truly figure out if they have that ability to stay where they are and work from home or not. But that's kind of how those two scenarios would happen. Okay. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you stopping by. And uh, there you go. 416-870-6400 is a number. Let's, uh, <coughs> pardon me, move on down to Jack. Jack, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to call in today. How are you doing? Good morning, hey, guys. Jack. Hey, Jack. Uh, hey, what's up? Uh, so my question is, um, if you have, a, in my case, I have a large salary, but majority of it, probably 80%, is commission-based and small, uh, regular uh, salary. So if you're terminated, is your termination based on your total year salary, or how do they figure out um, what your termination would be? based on high commission, low salary? Yeah, no, another good question. Uh, Generally speaking, your severance is based on everything that you're making. So let's say, for example, you're a salesperson and you've worked at a company for five years and you've got a base salary of $50,000, but your commissions are $250,000 every year. And you look back at your T4s and you see year after year, you're kind of actually grossing close to $300,000 a year. You get let go, company says, we'll give you your full severance, whatever months it is, but we're only going to give you severance based on your 50K salary. Well, that's just not going to fly. You know, you as an employee, a departing employee, um, have the expectation that all aspects of remuneration get continued, or at least most aspects. So things like base wages, commissions, bonuses, benefits, pension, you know, there's a whole whack of things. And, and especially if commissions represent a huge chunk of your pay, um, th- that's going to be reasonably expected to be paid out uh, when it comes to termination. Now, sometimes commissions may vary year to year, and that's when it gets a little bit more tricky to figure out you know, what the commission number is. And a lot of times the courts will look back at a two or three year average to figure out, okay, this is what we should assess as being proper severance. Um, but absolutely either way, commission should be counted for, especially in, in a case like you've brought up where it represents the, the majority of your earnings for those years. Great. That's what I thought. I just wanted to verify with you. And uh, great show. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it, pal. And uh, need inf- uh, any more information to follow up? As I said from the st- uh, from the top, you can always reach out to Chris and the team at one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Okay, one more uh, talking point on the first topic, and that was severance package one hundred one because everybody needs to know this stuff, Chris. And that is, mm-hmm. you may. Changes are made to your job uh, if you're harassed, forced to resign, all those different things, right? Yeah, so we're talking severance package 101. We've talked about what happens if you let go, maybe with or without cause, um, contractor, not contractor. Um, and, and as I say, in most cases, you're going to be looking at a severance package. Um, but there are also situations where your employer doesn't come to you and say, you know, we're terminating your employment, but actually sort of terminates your employment through their actions. You know, maybe they make big changes to your job. Maybe they tell you, that you're no longer going to be working the day shifts. Now we want you to work the night shifts or we're going to change the the role or maybe we're going to strip away half of your duties and replace them with these other duties or 
we're going to make you work in this location versus now this other location. So various changes can happen, and if they are big changes, that can in law amount to what's known as a constructive dismissal, which uh, the remedy for that is the same as though you were let go. And again, as an employee, you're going to have the ability to either accept the changes, maybe begrudgingly, maybe not, possibly negotiate with your employer to reach a, a compromise or a middle ground, or tell your employer, you know, look, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I agreed to. Look at my contract. Look at this. This is what I've been doing for the past however many years, and, and that's what I'm going to insist on. And if you guys are going to impose these changes, you know, you can then potentially treat your employment as having been let go. And then the same thing in the case of harassment. There's an implied duty on any every employer to treat their, their employees with di uh, uh, di um, civility, dignity, and respect. And, and also to make sure that other staff aren't, you know, mistreating others. And so you're going to have to take action. So if you're in a situation where you're suffering harassment at the workplace and nothing's really being done, then your employer has breached that implied duty in order to have the employees treated with civility, dignity, and respect. And that also can result in a constructive dismissal, which would be a termination at law and entitle you to some severance. So it's not just, you know, we're letting you go, here's your severance, but there are a number of other situations that could come up where, um, that outcome or that remedy would be the same. And, you know, these are examples, harassment changes or somehow being pushed out mm -hmm. of your job and almost forced to resign. With that, we'll take a short break, pal, and get to uh, Joseph. I think he's still hanging on the line. Joseph, stand by. We will get to you. Employment Law Show continues. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Good morning, Joseph. How are you, pal? What's going on? Good morning, and, uh, and it's a tremendous show. Uh, Thank you so question. much. Go ahead. Here's my question. Uh, my I belong to a union, even though I'm in management, and um, I've been offered a, a severance package. However, I have been told that my severance will be based on my 2015 salary as per the collective agreement. So essentially, I'm losing eight years of salary or close to $30,000 from 2015 to my current salary in 2023. Does that fall in line with the Employment Standards Act, or is it because there is a collective agreement, it is what it is? Yeah, so the Employment Standards Act applies to non-unionized employees, and when it comes to unionized employees, the collective bargaining agreement is one of the central documents to look for. Um, I myself don't practice in unionized matters, um, so you're going to have to, I think, at least touch base with your local union rep uh, to get hopefully a better idea. I, I can say that from the non-unionized perspective, um, when it comes to severance, uh, typically whatever you're earning at that time of termination is what the severance is based on. Or if your income varies from year to year, as I mentioned uh, with the earlier caller, um, there may be a two or three year average done to calculate your severance, which you know, in your case wouldn't go back as far as 2015. But that's all in the non-unionized context. So I can't really advise when it comes to unionized work other than to say that 
you know, the collective bargaining agreement is a key document and that probably will speak to what happens in these situations. Um, or it may be possible, as I say as well, to contact your local union rep and if there is some issue going on, um, maybe you have a valid grievance that you can bring um, that, that can be pursued to, to make an argument that actually no, the earnings that you've made in the more recent years should apply. But that's going to, as I say, come down to, to what's going on in your unionized uh, situation. I really appreciate your knowledge and your time. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Joseph. Appreciate it. And again, if you need to uh, reach out at a uh, further date, you can always, always do so. And that would be one 821 5,900. Okay, I wanted to touch on uh, reprisals with our last few minutes here. If we get any other phone calls, that's great. But if not, uh, here we go. A reprisal. We've we've talked about the term before on the show. Chris, break it down. What does it mean? Yeah, so it's, a reprisal is basically a situation where, you know, you've been punished for essentially standing up for your rights, you know, which is illegal completely. Uh, you know, the legal system protects employees. It gives them the power to pursue certain rights. So, for example, if you're an employee and you're inquiring about unpaid overtime or maybe there's a dispute as to the correct minimum wage that's being paid out or, you know, other sort of issues along these lines and you go to your employer and you try to collect on, on what's being owed or raise these issues, you know, your employer can't respond by saying, we don't like the fact that you're asking about this or demanding your overtime being paid. So we're going to punish you. You know, we're going to let you go, mm-hmm. or maybe we're not going to let you go, yeah. but we're going to make it more difficult for you going forward in your job. Um, maybe as, as a means to eventually push you out, you know, that would be an example of, of reprisal. That would be illegal. That would be a big issue for, uh, the employer because, you know, if you're, if you're going to be reprised against, you know, not only could there be severance obligations owed, but other things even on top of that. So that's in a nutshell what it is, is just the punishment for standing up for rights like these and um, employers, um, of course, not being allowed to do this. Let me ask you this. Say, say it's a situation where, uh, you know, you raise an issue maybe of harassments happening in the workplace, mm-hmm. something like that, and there's an investigation and it turns out that uh, your not accusations, but your thoughts are incorrect, and there was no harassment, and you get let go for that as well. Is that also a reprisal for even bringing up your rights? Yeah, that can be also a reprisal as well. You know, the employer mm. might think, "Oh, this person raised this complaint of harassment. We've determined that it's not legitimate." I mean, first of all, they may have conducted a faulty investigation, and it could very well be legitimate. And the company's just trying to go through the motions to to say they've done it and then kick it under the rug. Um, but even if the finding ultimately is that there is no harassment, generally speaking, uh, under the law, you're still allowed to present you know complaints regarding harassment. It's not something you'd be punished for. Employer might think, ah, we had to go through all this you know headache and all this legwork to do the investigation, only to find out it's not verified. So you know, screw this individual, we're going to, you know, treat them in this way. Well, no, that that is also a form of reprisal and, and also kind of puts the employer in, in hot water, for sure. So if you have an employee who's suffered from reprisal, what are the uh, what are the entitlements? Yeah, so in terms of somebody who's actually suffered from reprisal, there's a number of things that can be done. So, um, I mean, one thing you may want to do is try to work it out with your employer, get a, an employment lawyer to try to figure things out and get them to understand what they've done is wrong and push back. 
Another situation could be that you have been reprised against. So there's been a breach of the employer's obligation. There's been a breach of an implied duty to treat, as I say, everyone with civility, dignity, respect, and that on its own could result in a termination and entitle you to severance. But also, depending on the nature of the reprisal, like say you bring forward a sexual harassment complaint uh, and your employer mishandles the investigation or brushes it under the rug or punishes you as a result of bringing that complaint, now your employer is not only potentially on the hook for having to pay damages just for the fact of reprisal or retaliation, the fact of you know that being a termination, but now on top of that, on top of all that, you know, potential human rights uh, concerns are, are then going to be involved, and then there could be compensation, added compensation for breaching those human rights. So there's a lot to consider. There's there's a lot at risk, I think, when employers, um, you know, mishandle uh, responding to certain forms of reprisal, or you know, think uh, you know, sort of. You know, you've rocked the boat. You've ruffled too many feathers. <laughs> yeah. You're speaking too loud, so we're going to punish you. I mean, you could be hit with a whole whack of damages, a whole whack of compensation for the employee if if you're the employer. See, if if someone's facing this or they think it might be a case of reprisal, something they should go in, handle on their own, step into the boss's office, or you leapfrog that and come to you. Can can yeah. they handle on their own, or they should be seeing a lawyer right away? I I think. They sh- my my personal opinion would be you should be seeing a lawyer. You should be coming to a lawyer to get advice on how do I think properly communicate with your employer. I, I do think communicating with your employer as a first step is good, um, but I think getting advice maybe prior to doing that is best. Um, but but yeah, that's generally the first step. Talk to the employer, let them know the concerns. You know, basically put the ball in the employer's court. You know, then the employer is going to have to respond. Maybe they follow up with you. Maybe they don't. But they're going to have to respond. And depending on the response or their non-response as an employee, you may have to escalate things from there. And again, getting legal advice to kind of guide you through that whole process is, is I think, very important. Um, but yeah, it starts with that conversation. It starts with identifying things and and then and sort of finding out from there how the employer is going to respond to that. Nicely done, sir. And that is the way we're going to leave it for today. Reach out to Chris now. Have your own discussion and get some answers. one 821 Help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's the email address and the website, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We will catch you next time right here on the Employment Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.